Hi everybody and welcome to another one of Alan Robson's Grizzly Tales. And tonight I want you thinking about the kind of stuff that you eat. Now I can remember when I was little, you would hear stories about horrible things like cancer and people would say, but do you realise it's one out of every 20 people that's going to die of cancer? And within 20, 30, 40, 50 years, it's moved up to one out of every two of us will die of cancer. So it's obviously got to be something that we're eating, digesting, something that we're doing, something that we're touching, that has massively increased by thousands of percent the risk we have of death to that damned awful disease. So that made me think about stuff that can kill you and how would you die now let's take a look just for once at poison now dimethylmercury i have often heard that the mercury that you sometimes see in thermometers you gotta be very very careful with because should you get any of that inside your system you will find it uncomfortable to the degree of pretty much death And there was a time when people actually used dimethylmercury to use in science experiments in a laboratory. Remember the days of the old school lab with a Bunsen burner? And the only thing that ever made you pay remote attention was when the science teacher made some kind of weird explosion out of nothing. And then everybody focused their attention on how can they do that outside of the lab to scare people and uh, it never quite came off because dimethylmercury is the most deadly neurotoxin on earth and the only thing it can do is kill people it goes through standard laboratory gloves without even a thought if you can smell it you're already dead. A tenth of a milliliter is enough to take you out with acute mercury poisoning. That would mean intense stomach pain that would double you up and have you writhing on the floor, slurred speech, and eventually you would become trapped in your own body, unable to do anything except die. So you've got to be real careful. Don't mess with that. Now, we've talked a bit about snakes in the past and we've looked at the ones that are the most dangerous and I want to point you towards India. Now, should you go on holiday in India, watch out for a particular snake. It's a viper. It's called Russell's Viper over here. Its real name is Dabawaya. Now, Dabawaya should it take a chunk out of you, will cause the blood in your body to congeal into jelly. That's not a good thing, because that means all of your veins are congested and the blood's not moving. The snake's name comes from a Hindi word meaning lurking and hiding. So we're not exaggerating when we say watch where you put your foot when you're walking around India. Now, a lot of hemotoxins, if they're in your body, are watery. Russell's Viper makes everything coagulate together, making you wee blood, you will throw up, 
you will suffer complete kidney failure very quickly. And if you survive, and about one in every eight do, you're in for weeks of intense pain, blisters, and a lifetime of reduced organ function. So that's not a funny thing, and it's not to be messed with. Also, if you watch a lot of movies, and I do love them, you occasionally hear the phrase ricing. So we know it's bad. If you watch Breaking Bad, you will know how horrific the deadly effects of ricing are. It's actually purified from castor beans. But if you happen to ingest ricing, good news, your stomach might get crampy, but your digestive acids are okay at handling the worst of it, unless you've consumed a large quantity, like a, a small packet full. Because if ricin gets into your body through an open wound, your chances are worse, because that stuff has a direct path into your bloodstream where it begins to interrupt cell processes. Your organs will all bleed out and die. Now, the next one is something that you have already ingested into your system, whether you like it or not. Carbon monoxide. It's not the worst, it's not the most painful, it's not the most deadly, but it's actually quite a sneaky thing, carbon monoxide. It creeps into your house through uh, maybe a heater that's broken. It incapacitates people. Because normally you may well be asleep or you're napping, you feel a bit dizzy, confused, you've got a bit of a headache, and it will kill you before you wake up from a nap. The thing is, it can't be sensed by the human body. Most homes have a detector to alert families to problems like this. But those batteries, well, how many of you have changed them recently? 500 people a year will die of carbon monoxide poisoning in their own home. Your blood won't get enough oxygen and most survivors recover completely but many of them have partial brain necrosis which means you're likely to die long before you should. Tetrodotoxin. Mm. Now, if you're a fan of all things classical, this is the stuff that almost killed Homer back in the day when he ate fugu. Tetrodotoxin, or TTX, is how most people know it. It's found in most types of marine life. Frogs, toads, newts. Science is reasonably divided as to whether these animals produce it or whether it's just a product of all of the bacteria helpful bacteria normally that live on them. Either way, there's a reason why it's illegal to keep a blue-ringed octopus as a pet because they've got the most TTX. It's far more toxic than cyanide. There's no antidote. It'll kill you because what it does doesn't work with the blood. It interrupts the signals between your brain and your body, which means your head can't make your muscles work. It suffocates you inside your body. Let's have another one that we've heard of because of various news bulletins and an awful lot of television and movie. We're talking about polonium. Now, this is 
potentially the most dangerous, but it's also the most useless. Polonium-210 has no function, and yet handling it is stupidly dangerous because of how radioactive it is. The isotope's radiation cannot pass through your skin, but it will seek out any available opening you have to infiltrate and kill you through an ear, through an eye, up your nose, in your mouth, at the end of your... Well, we don't want to think about it. You usually end up having a prolonged battle with one of the worst forms of cancer. Now, there are a lot of isotopes of polonium, but a single gram of polonium-210 could kill 10 million people, injuring another 10 million. Why do these things even exist? But somebody's created it. It has no function other than to kill masses of the population. How long before it does? Oh, blimey, aren't we on the optimistic side? The other one is a spider that I've told you stories of before, with me being covered in these things in the woods and forest lands of New Orleans when I was visiting a haunted plantation, the brown recluse spider. Now, not so much here, although some false widows have been moving into Britain, the brown recluse, if you live in the Americas, uh, has a home in your shoes, under your pillow, in your toilets, particularly southern North America. It's a late-night hunter, so it's out at night when you're trying to sleep with your mouth open. Now, the spider won't actively hunt for you, but it will bite you if it's accidentally threatened. And although the bite quite often can't even be felt, the toxins that it delivers will cause large patches of your flesh, large areas of your skin to die. And sometimes it needs that flesh to be surgically removed. It eats away at your flesh. Most healthy adults would deal with the effects, but if you're young or if you've got a health issue, the poison can cause ruptured blood cells, blood thinning, organ failure, and it'll kill you. This next one is another one of those things that you've heard of, but you've got no idea really what it is. VX gas. We've all heard of VX gas, haven't we? But it's ethyl, 2-bis-propan-2-y-elamina-ethyl-sulfanyl-methyl-phosphonate. That's its actual name. Now, VX, bit better than all of that. It was originally created to be an insecticide. But once they started using it on the countryside, it was deemed far too harmful for any casual use, so the British Army took it on as a potential weapon. Now, if you're looking at this, it looks a bit like, like the oil you would put in your car. But if you should touch it, if you should get it on your skin, it'll cause muscular contractions, shortness of breath, loss of bowel control, and you will poo yourself, blisters on your eyes, and it will eventually suffocate you from a loss of muscle control so you cannot breathe. In the event that you do survive, and sometimes the people do, 
It creates mental disorders. There is not a happy ending when we're talking about VX gas. So I just thought I would enlighten you, and actually enlighten myself, on some of the nastiest things that you can ingest into your system. But let's have perhaps a more traditional story, but a proper grisly tale from Barbados. I was handed a photograph when I was in the States. I wasn't in uh, Barbados at the time. I was in Florida. And when I was there, I visited an antique shop and the guy said, we got all these old photographs. I know that you write books about ghosts and myths and legends. If any of the photographs would be of use to you, would you like them? And I took half a dozen with me. He, he was very kind. It's the kind of stuff that I could maybe use. And one of the photographs was taken by somebody called Kimball, who lived at 477 Broadway, New York, in the 1800s. It's a picture taken in New York of two beautiful slave children from New Orleans. The pair, aged about seven, are linking one another and it has written on the back of the photograph, Isaac and Rosa. It's a brown coloured print and it was printed to encourage people to bid money to buy those two children. How sick is that? Now, the thought at the time was if they bought these children at this age, that they would get 50 or 60 years of hard work from them for as little as $30, $15, about £12 for each child for their entire life. Isaac was a dark-skinned boy, whilst Rosa was almost white, almost certainly fathered by a white plantation worker. In many historical writings, they say that no white people were enslaved, which is patently not true. The very first slaves in the Caribbean were Scottish and Irish, and many white albinos were also taken. So many of the slaves had children to their white owners. Entire tribes of redheads were created. If you go to Jamaica now, there is... Uh, a swathe of the population that are red-headed. Yet when that innocent picture was taken, no one would have had any idea where these children would end up. However, I chased it down. They were purchased by a slaver called William Fry for a famous plantation in New Orleans called Magnolia Lane, a plantation that I had visited and carried out a couple of ghost hunts in. How amazing that that coincidence, that circle turns, yet there they were in a photograph. There they were trained for table and household duties in the main house. And then one day a lady from a plantation came to visit for a month. Now this lady's name was Margaret Hope. She was an attractive older woman who flirted and entranced her host. He was falling for her, yet she was playing a clever game. Her plantation needed foremen, white workers who could control slaves, without whom her tobacco and cotton business would simply collapse. 
So Fry took her out to several auctions and he helped her gather exactly the crew that she needed and they were sent across to Barbados before she returned with a letter for her manager. Meanwhile, Fry, fancying her, tried to encourage her to stay a bit longer, but her job was done. She had used her casual friend to get a tricky job done. Problem was, of course, that Fry was now head over heels saying things like, if there's anything else I can do, just say. Margaret then replied at the dinner table, well, I would love to take Rosa back with me. She has looked after me so well here, and you have no need for a child to be a lady's maid. Now Isaac, the little boy who was sold with her when she was aged about six, Isaac was now 15. He heard this. He'd loved Rosa since they were paraded at the slave auction together. What could he do? So he decided to speak out. Master, Rosa is my woman. If she goes with Mistress Hope, could I go too, please? The white faces around the table laughed. Fry chuckled. Oh, see what you've done? Now I've got a slave rebellion, thanks to you. The plantation owner walked over to Rosa, who stood at attention behind Mistress Hope, and said, of course you can take the girl, but you know you take my heart too. Would it be okay if I wrote to you? Margaret Hope said, of course. Knowing that she would never reply, she'd played him well, staying free for a month, and all the secrets of getting bargains in New Orleans had been taught to her. Births for Mistress Hope and her eight-person entourage was bought on a tall ship by him that would take her down back home to her home in Barbados, and that would be the last time that Fry would ever see her again. Yet that very morning, young Isaac had disappeared. By the time Fry realised he would be trying to follow Rosa, the ship was already at sea, and there, hiding in one of the four lifeboats, was this very determined young man. Every day, staring out of the edge of the lifeboat, hoping to catch a glimpse of his Rosa as the boat rocked and rolled its way over quite a stormy Caribbean sea. He had with him very, very little food, and he drank rainwater that was captured on the tarpaulin over the boat. On arrival, he was last off, racing after Mistress Hope. "'Excuse me, miss,' he yelled, stopping a party getting into one of the three coaches waiting for her. "'Do you remember me?' Mistress Hope giggled and answered, "'Yes, your young Rosa's man!' A grin widened across her face. Rosa ran into his arms and cried, "'Looks like I've got you whether I wanted you or not!' Two hours' ride later, and they arrived at the Hope Plantation. Expecting it to be much easier than with Mr Fry, it was far from that. Some slaves had tried to escape, and four of them were flayed down to the bone, tied to frames around the central square. Mistress Hope shrieked at her manager, I told you to stop this! One of her newly hired foremen walked over and said, Give me his job and I'll stop it within 24 hours. 
but I need to do it my way. She looked at her old manager. You're fired, and nodded towards her newbie. As she got off the coach, there was an ungodly scream from behind her, as using a paring knife, the foreman, the new foreman, emasculated one of the slaves, then forced him to chew and eat his own scrotum. The other slaves saw this and begged him not to do it to them. Instead, this foreman, an unruly savage of a Liverpudlian called Lehman, walked back to the slave who was slowly bleeding to death and brought the knife down into his skull. The man began shaking, screaming, until death finally stole him from the pain. Lehman shouted, I shall not let you die slowly like this if you try to escape. Now tell everyone, Jack Lehman is boss hand, and I was born in hell, and even the devil is frightened of me. His wild eyes made the statement believable under torchlight in that darkened plantation square. Rosa and Isaac were told to look after the household but they must never show any signs of public affection to one another. And for two years they never did. And then Lehman began to see how attractive Rosa was becoming. His rule was that the white slavers could take any woman of colour that they wanted at any time. It kept his men hard-working and loyal, so therefore he decided Rosa was to be his that day, he stopped Rosa as she washed some clothes in an outhouse and said, "'Tonight, you, come to me, dressed nice and smelling fine.' No slave dared refuse, but she told Isaac, who told her that she couldn't go. They were as good as married. This couldn't happen. Drastically, he tried to organise any type of escape plan without success, and just then he heard screaming, it came from Lehman's hut, away from the main white encampment. He knew that scream was from Rosa. He simply picked up a small hatchet off the woodpile and he raced through the darkness. The door just slammed open and there was Lehman on top of Rosa, tears streaming down her face. Within three paces, the hatchet was brought across the foreman's head, knocking him out of bed. Then the hatchet was raised, and with all of the force the young lad could muster, he buried it in his face. He was dead before he could speak. In their panic, Isaac dragged his body to the coal fire and lay his face in the flame. Perhaps they would think he fell. After all, he had a big lump on his head. There was no explanation for the hatchet in his face. They would just have to run. Isaac knew they had packs of dogs, so they'd need to get onto a river. So they ran off, wading along every river they could find. And then, there they were, at the sea. But where could they go? In all directions, other plantations that would return anyone who'd killed one of their owners. They knew they would die, whatever they did. Their future was pretty certain. After two days, they found themselves back at the port that they had arrived in. Isaac thought, 
if I can get here without being seen, surely we can get back. So whilst on land that night, they gathered fruit from the jungles, corn from plantation, and easily eaten fruit. They would gather rainwater like before. Surely you couldn't escape, not from a Barbadian plantation. To their surprise, they arrived, completely unseen, back in New Orleans. There, they worked in a local theatre for ten years until their owner, so happy with them, set them free. In New Orleans, they ran a restaurant that became so successful that they even thought of trying to buy the Hope Plantation just so that they could free everyone. They returned to Barbados and they lived the rest of their lives as free people in the very north, far, far away from where anyone would ever recognise them. Wanted posters of Isaac and Rosa remained on public buildings for both of them for almost 30 years. Occasionally they would walk past them in their own town, yet they looked so different. And now they had five children of their own, Isaac with a huge grey beard, and Rosa, who had padded out a tad and described herself as built for comfort. They opened a restaurant that became the talk of the island called Juju's. They say that Margaret Hope once even visited it, but thought that the spices there were rather too aggressive. Okay, let's head back across to Europe, to another place I've been lucky enough to visit, the American Hotel in Amsterdam. Now, Leedseplein is a fashionable entertainment area in Amsterdam. And it was exactly that in the late 1800s. Yet years before, it was the area where Johan van Bankum used to live. Back in 1672. Or the year of disaster, according to Dutch history. A double murder was committed that changed the face of the political scene. Now, a man called Cornelius de Witt was accused of a plot to kill the king, the Dutch king, William III. De Witt was taken to a chamber in The Hague where he was severely tortured. His fingernails ripped off, both testicles squashed flat, using a flat-headed torture gadget similar to large pliers that was also used to crush his feet. The day after, his brother Johan was asked to visit him, and on seeing his broken body, he discovered that militia were there to imprison him too. Now, Johan van Bankham was an alderman and had sent away the detachment of cavalry and put three militia to guard the cell. He then went outside and started inciting the mob, saying that the De Witt brothers were trying to destroy Holland to hand it over to France or to England. Now, Van Bankham knew the De Witts were innocent, but he wanted to raise his profile and get noticed. The one thing he couldn't allow for 
was his prisoners to go to court, because if they did, they could easily prove their innocence. They both had alibis, they both had witnesses to prove the alibis to be true. And if this happened, Van Bankham's career would be absolutely ruined. So he gathered his own militia, some friends of his own, and he stormed his own jail. The poor innocent brothers were dragged from the building and pushed to their knees where they were shot in the head. The bodies were left for the mob, who hacked them to pieces, carrying off arms and legs, parading their heads on the end of pikes. Now, King William III played no part in this double murder, but he did reward all of the leaders who took part, making Van Bankham a highly ranked police officer and transforming him instantly into a very wealthy man. Officially, this made him chief prosecutor and head of all police and detectives, a bizarre job for a proven murderer, and it was not long before he was breaking many of the laws he was being paid to protect. He started imprisoning innocent people that he just didn't like or women that he wanted to have sex with, promising them freedom if they slept with him. He even set up his own private jail just for female prisoners and used it as his own personal brothel. He then began using local prostitutes to set up his enemies, putting them in compromising situations. Finally, he tried to set up one of King William III's friends. And then a group of others came forward to expose what he'd been doing. He was arrested in 1676 in his luxury home in Amsterdam, where the American Hotel now stands. He was charged with multiple cases of extortion and false imprisonment. He was found to have blackmailed hundreds of people, and his land and all of his monies were confiscated by the state. And he was made to confess by a horrific device that you can still see in Amsterdam's Torture Museum. You lie upside down with your back over a sharp edge, and gravity slowly breaks your back. Despite his back injury, he managed to escape but was recaptured and put in the same jail that he'd placed the DeWitt brothers. He put forward an appeal funded by his ill-gotten gains, but his back was seriously damaged, and following a fall it snapped, killing him. Along the canal, outside the American Hotel, people claimed to regularly see a figure bent double, believed to be the spirit of Van Bankham, returning to the place he loved to live before everything went wrong for him. So for our last grisly tale, I thought I would share with you the story of the sickly king of Dalreata. Now, this is over in the West Niles of Scotland. That's head north, keep going north, even further north than that. Then get a boat and turn left, and then you hit this particular part of the world. In the mid-400s, long time ago, the descendants of Luan controlled northern Argyll, including the Isle of Mull and several other islands. Now, Luan's father was Irk, the son of a very physically brutish man, Irkhead Munremur. So he expected his son to be a bit like him, a vicious fighting man. Instead, he had a weak, sickly child. In fact, the child almost died on three separate occasions in his first year, leaving him very weak, often ill. 
and as he grew up, unwilling to do anything that involved effort. The entire family put up with him rather than spend time with him whilst brothers and cousins were fighting against local tribes out on the sea fishing or building fortifications and all the while Luan was sleeping in a field taking Bible studies or learning how to manipulate others. In time, Luan had rid his tribe of those he felt intimidated by and had some of his own family murdered to keep his position safe but the one relationship he valued was that of his nephew, Machurka. They would spend hours together, walking, sitting by the coast, chatting, and then one day they went to the seaside. A fire was lit, and they cooked a pot of oysters, clams and shellfish, and as they waited, Luan fell asleep in the long grass. He woke up and felt something sticky on his clothes and hands, On looking down he noticed that something had been poured on him. He tried to wipe it off, but it just smeared. He shouted to his nephew, Mach, what is this stuff? It's disgusting. Mach walked over and said, It's grease, my lord. So why am I covered in it? He looked utterly perplexed. Well, said Machurka, I found out yesterday that twas ye who ordered me mammy and me father to be killed. They didn't die in a fire like I was telt. They were set on fire tied to a tree, and that would be a terrible way to gan, so now you're near. At that, he threw a burning tinder onto Luan, and he burst into flames. He was crying, he was screaming, trying to roll around in the grass, but he was covered in grease too, so it just made it worse. It took almost ten minutes for him to die, screaming all the while as his skin burnt off and his innards cooked. Machurka admitted doing it, and on hearing of Luan's murder, he was never prosecuted. Instead, he was promoted through social rankings. And some mornings you see a strange glow on the beach that locals believe is the burning body of Luan. In other occasions, you can walk along the coast and smell burning, you think, barbecue? or burning flesh. And in the distance you hear the sound of seagulls, or is it the sound of disembodied screeches of a man aflame? And that's our grisly tale for today. If you want a real, live recorded adventure, get yourself looking through robsonsworld.com. I would love you to uh, download a few and hopefully enjoy them. Thanks for joining me. Until next time, from me, Alan Robson. God bless you, and I wish you well.